Amen. Amen. You know, my friends, as I was thinking through the message for this morning, um, and if, if I can put a label on it, it's going to be this, I'm grateful. That's it, I'm grateful. That's the theme that's been resonating in my heart lately is, I've just got a lot to be thankful for. And perhaps it's, it's weighed so heavily upon me because let's be honest, I don't always stop to give thanks, do I? Oh, the number of blessings I walk right past. Mm. You know what got me thinking about it? Is uh, we, we are entering into a particular season in our, in our uh, life, in our routine, in our society. Halloween is behind us. And that means that we tend to enter into a very fierce debate in society around this time. It divides households. Brother against brother, sister against sister. Is it okay to decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving? No, I mean, I, I'm not joking. Like, is that, Okay, because there are some people who take this very, very seriously. And, and I've noticed this. Right after Halloween, some people are already busting out the, uh, the Christmas decorations. And I'm like, what's going on? And, and then I realize in our culture, we have a different set of people who are very fiercely against this. You're not supposed to decorate until when? After Thanksgiving, After Thanksgiving yes. And so we end up with a very fierce debate. And uh, personally, I am uh, a very fierce proponent of saying we should not start decorating for Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Yes, you see, um, I, I personally believe maybe we should take some time to uh, cultivate the spirit of thanksgiving before we enter into a season right. that has been dominated by materialism. Right, right. But that's not what I'm preaching on. I'm going to step away from that for a moment. <laughs> but this can be kind of a fierce thing in some households. You know, when, uh, when Jen and I first got married, you, you all know what that's like when you bring different traditions into one household. Yeah. And my wife is like, we need to get a Christmas tree. And I'm like, why? And then my wife is like, we need to decorate for Christmas. And I'm like, why? Seriously, y'all, it's, it's a miracle I'm still married. <laughs> but here's the thing, some of us, we get really wrapped up in, in the spirit of Christmas, in that sort of holistic experience. Right? And, and it's not just the gifts, it's, you know, the songs, it's the sitting by a warm fire on a cold night. It's the, the traditional food that we eat. There's sort of this holistic experience that we have. Yeah. And for some people, there's just this expectation that you embrace that experience to the fullest as early and as often as you can. And then for some of us, we just think it's a little weird, and we ended up getting labeled Ebenezer Scrooge. Which I have been called more than once in my marriage. Probably for good reason. It's okay. But here's another thing that really fascinates me about Christmas is while some people get really into it, they get really into the holistic experience, the joy, the, the, the season. The Christmas season is not so enjoyable for all people because it's also a season of remarkably high depression. A lot of people go through seasons of depression during, around Christmas. 
you know, and, and it can be kind of hard when, when you stand there and you have all your friends who are all decorating and smiling and happy and you just feel hollow inside, yeah. kind of left out. And it's, it's that kind of misaligned expectations and everyone looks and says, well, wait, you're not excited about Christmas. What's wrong? What's wrong with you? As if there's something that needs to be fixed. <clears throat> and here's why this, this has kind of resonated within me. Because it's not just Christmas where that happens. It happens in the church as well. Because so much of our experience in church is built around just that, having that kind of holistic experience with God. Right? Where we come in and we just feel the presence of God. It just grips us. And we can lose ourselves in worship. And believe me, I think that is a very important experience. But not everyone shares in that the same way. And if we're honest with ourselves, we go through seasons sometimes. Seasons where we can get lost in worship. Seasons where, where God seems to be sitting on our shoulders. Seasons where whenever something goes wrong for us, Jesus is right there holding us every step of the way. But if we're honest, there are also seasons when we don't feel that. There are seasons when things seem to fall apart around us. And we just don't know where to turn. And there are seasons when our life is falling apart and we look up to the heavens and we pray and we say, God, please, I need you. And we wait. And we just feel like we're kind of waiting around. There are seasons where we start to wonder, is God even there hearing us? If we're honest with ourselves. And during those times, sometimes, we can come in to worship. The person to the left of us can just get caught up in the presence of God. And the person to the right of us can just get caught up in the presence of God. And we stand there in the middle, just feeling hollow. Someone tell me I'm not the only one who's ever been there. Not alone up here? Okay. I just want to be sure, because the truth is that in those times when I've come into church and just felt hollow inside and everyone around me is praying and I, I just I just look around. Where's God in this moment? The truth is that I don't want to talk about that experience. I don't want to admit that there are times when I might come in and not feel the presence of God the way I'm looking for. See, I don't want to admit that because I don't want to be judged. It's amazing, isn't it? How we judge the spirituality of other people based upon what we see. And when we judge the spirituality of other people based upon what we see, it is amazing how the standard by which we judge others is our own personal experience. That person does not get caught up the way I do. They must not feel worship the same way. There must be something wrong. Or that person gets a little too caught up, more than I do. And you think about it when we do that. We basically make ourselves the standard for everyone else. It's a remarkably self-centered thing to do. It is. But that, and it's a remarkably small view of God. You know, if you think about it. You know how... Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, before he becomes an Apostle, right? He's on his way to Damascus. Remember what happens on the road to Damascus? 
Who shows up? Jesus shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus. Why does Jesus show up to meet Paul on the road to Damascus? Do we know? Well, simple. That's the road that Paul was on. I'm serious. We've got another story in the Gospels. Two, two, uh, two disciples walking after the crucifixion of Jesus along the road to Emmaus. And who shows up and walks with them? Jesus. They didn't even know it was Jesus until the end of the story. Why did Jesus meet them on the road to Emmaus? That's the road they were on. And that's the remarkably powerful thing about this God, is this God has a way of showing up on whatever road we may find ourselves on. Which means this God has a remarkable way of speaking to people in very different ways, depending on where we are in life. It is a remarkably self-centered thing when I think that everyone should experience God the same exact way that I do. But nevertheless, when we come in, we just feel that hollowness inside. When we come in and we just feel that, that emptiness almost, and we really don't want to talk about it because we don't want to be judged. You know, because I, I think there may be a little bit of a, a cultural undercurrent in, in Christian churches these days that view those moments as a spiritual infirmity that needs to be fixed. If I come in to the prayer group and I say, guys, I just feel hollow inside. I pray and I don't feel like God is hearing anything. I'm going to end up on everyone's prayer list. Right? They're all going to think something's wrong. We need to pray for him because we need to fix this. But here's the thing that I find fascinating. That, that moment that, that we all go through, if you're a Christian long enough, you will go through that. Not all Christians throughout history have viewed that as a bad thing. In fact, uh, the mystics of the Middle Ages, um, so the monks and the nuns, who devoted their entire lives to prayer, these are people where the one thing that they wanted to learn how to do in this world was how to pray and connect to their God. And so they devote their entire lives to it. They talked about that experience, that hollowness, very, very differently. That wasn't a problem to be fixed. It was actually a good thing. St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Ignatius Leo, all talk about it in some way. St. John of the Cross calls it the dark night of the soul. You see, he says that as our soul journeys closer and closer to God, we start to realize how much bigger God was than we initially thought. Every step we take, we look up, we say, God's a little bigger than I thought. You know, when things are far away, they can seem kind of small, right? But the closer we get, the more we realize God's bigger. And eventually we get to a place where when someone says, okay, so who is God? The only answer we have is, I don't know, God's bigger than anything I can say. Who is God? I don't know, God's bigger than anything I can see. Who is God? Well, this is how I view God, but I guarantee you, God's going to be bigger than what I can talk about right now in this moment. The dark night of the soul for John of the Cross was actually a beautiful moment. It's disorienting. It's troubling. It doesn't make us feel good. But he said, this is actually a sign that you are journeying closer to God. Because here's the thing. When, when I come in and week after week I connect to God and I get caught up in the experience of worship, and I have these, what we sometimes call mountaintop experiences, where God is so close, I can reach out and touch Him. And then all of a sudden that stops. 
And I come into worship and it feels like God's just so distant. That's not a bad thing. Because it opens a door for us to connect to God in new ways. Sometimes the temptation is for us to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop. You know what I mean? We go to a worship conference and we experience the presence of God in a very real way. God is there. God touches us. But then we go back into the routines of daily life. We go back down the mountain into the valley. And let's be honest, my friends. Most of life is lived in the valley. And after a year of journeying through the valley, we decide, well, you know what? I need another mountaintop experience. And so we go back up to another conference to get our booster shot of the Holy Spirit. And then we go back down into the valley. Now, I'm serious. When, when I worked in Bolivia, um, we would have missions teams that would come over to serve in the orphanage. And... I would talk to some, of, to, to some of these individuals who would come and ask them, what brought you here? And for many of them, it was because they had encountered God while serving in missions at some point. And then they go back to the routine of daily life and find it hard to connect to God again. So they go back to that mountaintop, hopping from mountaintop to mountaintop. But here's the thing. God doesn't just want to connect to us on the mountaintop, am I correct? God wants to be able to hold us in the valleys as well. And that's why sometimes when we come up to the mountaintop and we say, okay, God, where are you? And we look around and we don't feel it. That can be troubling. That can be disorienting. But that can also open the door for us to learn how to connect to God in a new way. Amen? Amen. The thing about the Psalms that troubles me the most is how honest they are. The Psalms are very honest about the range of the human condition. You see, the thing about the Psalms is the Psalms uh, uh, operate differently than the rest of the Bible. The Bible teaches us, the Bible instructs us, the Bible guides us. The Psalms will guide us in a very different way. You see, whereas the Bible speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. The Psalms are prayers, praises, thanksgivings to God. And they reflect the full range of the human experience. You have some psalms that say, God, I'm going to praise you in the morning because of how good you are. And you have some psalms that say, God, where are you? You have some psalms that are psalms of thanksgiving. Bless the Lord, for he is good at all times. And then we have some psalms that say, how long, O Lord, must I stand in this place of pain? The psalms reflect the full range of, of human experience. And truth be told, I think the Psalms are far more honest than I am today. Just being honest. I think the Psalms are far more honest than I am comfortable with in church culture today. Because some of those prayers, I don't know if I would feel comfortable if someone stood up and began praying. But that's just being biblical. And here's the thing about the Psalms, though, uh, and a remarkable thing about Christian spirituality, is that the God we serve may encounter us in a place of despair, but he's not going to leave us there. The God that we serve may find us in a place of pain. That doesn't mean he's going to leave us there. The God that we serve may find us in a place where we are lacking in love, where we are lacking in the breath of life inside of our souls, but that does not mean he's going to leave us there. You see, my friends, when God showed up and found the children of Israel in Egypt, did he leave them there? No, he didn't. When, uh, when Jesus encounters someone in a life of sin, does he leave them there? No, he doesn't. And the Psalms do the same thing. 
the prayers of the Psalms. They guide us from places of despair into places of hope. You see, the Psalms actually take us on a journey. If you were to read the Psalms from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, it takes you on a journey. And the Psalms tend to begin in these remarkably troubling places where people feel alone, where people feel abandoned, where people look up at the sky and say, God, where are you? I, I just need to take just a taste, just to see, because right now I'm not feeling like you're there. And as you journey through the Psalms, gradually the prayers begin to transform. From God, where are you? To God, I bless your name. To God, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the blessings that you've bestowed around me. And the question becomes, how do the Psalms move someone who's praying from a place where we feel hollow inside, where we feel empty, to a place where we can still praise God for his goodness day in and day out, even in the midst of our troubles, even in the midst of our trials. That's the journey that the Psalms take us on. And as I read through the Psalms, I notice there's something that they keep doing over and over again. They give thanks. They give thanks. Because you see, my friends, one of the things that the Psalms do is, as they begin talking about, as they begin presenting prayers from places of pain, they pause to take a look around to find the things that we can still give thanks for. As the Psalms begin praying from places of despair, they pause to take a look around at the blessings that God has still left around us. Amen. And oftentimes, counting what God has done for us in the past is what can help get us through the trials of the present. Yeah. Let me say that again. Sometimes, 